if all of us this morning were able to get in some sort of time machine and travel back into history in order to stop along the way and stand shoulder to shoulder, chest to chest as it were, packed in tightly to strain together to hear some faint note of some of the greatest preachers in church history, where would we stop? Maybe it would be uh, George Whitfield and his ability there on the East Coast to proclaim with such power that many in the open fields could have heard him. Charles Spurgeon, who we know there preached in London, or Jonathan Edwards, or maybe D.L. Moody. John Knox in the face of Queen Mary, or Martin Luther on trial at the Diet of Worms. Calvin in his church at Geneva. Maybe you would have wanted to go back just a few years, not that long ago, and heard Martin Lloyd-Jones over in England. Or maybe Hugh Latimer, an Englishman who preached so strongly to King Henry VIII that the following week, King Henry demanded that when he came and preached again, he apologized for what he had said the week before that offended him. And this is what Hugh Latimer said as he began his sermon following the offending sermon the previous week. He begins by addressing himself. Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak to the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest? Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdest all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And he then proceeded, with much more vigor than the previous week, to preach the exact same sermon. Maybe you wouldn't want to stop there. But I would, I, would, I, would, I would venture to guess that if we were able to do so, I certainly know I wouldn't have up until this last week, would not have traveled all the way back to the first preacher of the good news of Jesus Christ if we will look at this morning. A man who, in the wilderness of Judea, standing by a river, preached maybe more successfully, maybe more powerfully than any preacher that was to come after him. John the Baptist. If you're taking notes this morning, I've divided this message into three different sections. We have the messenger, we have the medium, and then we have the message. Let's look at the messenger. Oftentimes when you attempt something for the first time, it's a failed attempt, which is why you tend to do it the second, third, fourth, fifth time. There's the old adage that you really have grasped how to do something when you do it the 10,000th hour. John the Baptist was the first preacher and he in no way failed because there's been very few after him. In fact, Jesus even said in Matthew eleven eleven, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And if you look at your text, as we mentioned last week in the book of Mark, he, Mark, the gospel writer here, jumps more quickly than any other writer of the gospels right into the action, right into the scene of what's going on in proclaiming John the Baptist. And the reason he would do so is that for the gospel writer Mark, this Messiah was not simply another man. He was not simply a prophet. 
the Messiah was and is like any other, unlike any other man before or after him, the Messiah was the Son of God. And for Mark, his desire was to proclaim that faithfully in the way that he began writing. The other Gospels give some background to Jesus Christ. His desire for us, the Gospel writer Mark, for us and for those who were reading his text was, the Messiah has come, there is no equal. And we should be quick to note that in in reference to prophecy, which you see here in verse 2 of Mark 1, that Mark, in his reference to the prophecy of Scripture, Isaiah, which we'll get to here in a minute, is done so, and in conveying this prophecy, is seeking to tell us when God speaks, he does so with a creative act, and he intends that his word will come to fruition. There will not be any word that goes out and does not and returns void. This word, this Bible that we hold in our hands is wholly reliable and should be approached with the anticipation every Sunday morning in this church, every day of the week that we open it on a personal basis, we should be approaching it with the understanding that God is speaking to us and that what he says will happen. And the writer Mark is simply trying to help us understand that this morning. We must always hold a high view of the Bible. But who is this man, John the Baptist? I would assume that many would have been asking that question in that day when he arrives on scene. If you turn in your Bible over to Luke chapter 1, just a few pages over, the writer Luke offers the fullest background to this man, John. And I would just note a few passages here in Luke to help us understand who he is. Luke 1 verse 5. We get introduced to his parents. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, that's his father, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. His father was a priest. His mother was a descendant of Aaron. Go down a few more verses to verse 13. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, this angel appearing to Zechariah, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. They weren't able to have any children. For your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. I want you to note this phrase. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now we see this come to fruition when Elizabeth meets Mary and John leaps in the womb at the recognition of the Christ. He's a Nazarite. He's been set apart for a specific work to prepare the way of the Lord. In fact, if you look a little further over in uh, verse, uh, down in verse 17, You'll see, and he will go before him, meaning go before the Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Christ even recognizes him as as the second Elijah, which I'll mention more here in a minute, but he was called to prepare the way of the Lord, called to turn the people back towards God's ways. Continue on with me in Luke 1 over to verse 76. John has been born and Zechariah prophesies of what he will do. 
verse 76 of Luke 1. And you, child, meaning John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So he is the first prophet in the New Testament, the first prophet in the first 400 years following the period of time between the Old Testament writing and the New Testament. There's not been a prophet. John is the first one. Mark harkens us back in these first couple of verses all the way to Isaiah's prophecy. It would have been 700 years since Isaiah that John shows up on the scene. Continuing in verse 76 of Luke 1. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Notice, this is important, verse 80, giving us some background of what was going on in John's life. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now flip back over with me to Mark chapter 1. Notice in verse 2 of Mark 1, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger. John understands he has been sent by God for a specific task, that is to prepare the way of the Lord. I want you to notice a few things about Elisha. If 2 Kings 1.8, no need to turn there, we're told of Elisha that he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Now, if you look there at Mark 1, verse 6, you see John's description. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. John the Baptist probably would have been met with some strong concern if he was to come in most church doors today. In fact, you probably would find John under a bridge on 6th Street in Austin wearing some sort of raw clothing. This was not a fashion design belt. This was probably a simple cord around his waist. And John was apparently the first vegan. (laughs) Ate locusts and wild honey. And he was in the wilderness. He wasn't in a place where people were. So you can imagine in this day, Someone knowing of this prophecy that Zechariah gives, because Zechariah was a priest, he was a, he was a pastor, in a sense. He had given this prophecy, people would have known he was mute, and people would have been wondering, where is John? You know, this one that we've heard about. Where is he? Oh, John. You haven't heard of him? John fell off the deep end, took a left. He's in the wilderness. Really, what's he doing? Well, he's eating locusts and wild honey. Really? Yeah, he's preaching. And man, he's drawing massive crowds. You're talking John. Yes, I'm talking about this man, John. He's drawing massive crowds. He's in the wilderness, yeah. I mean, he's not in town. He's not, at the, he's not at the church. No, he's not at the church. He's in the wilderness. And people are going out there to hear him preach. Yes, going out to hear him preach. And he's wearing what again? It's quite interesting. The paradox that we have here that's been described He's got these living quarters that are out in the wilderness. We saw that in Luke 180 until the day of his public appearance. He's got this clothing that is quite humble, this diet that is, is meager at best, certainly simple. 
All these things point to something much deeper. They're a physical manifestation of a deeper heart motivation. Simply that John, namely, was single-minded in his service to Christ. He wanted no distractions. He was set apart from the world. And notice, in his single-minded devotion to Christ, though by all human outward indicators he would not have been popular, because he did what God called him to do, he may have been the, most, the greatest preacher ever in church history. Some people attribute to the fact that he might have preached as much to as 300,000. And he's just doing so out in the wilderness of Judea. Look at verse 2 and 3 of Mark 1 again. Mark, telling us of this messenger to come, gives us something that none of the, that none of the other gospels give. And that would be in verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's not Isaiah. If you went and read Isaiah 40, which we'll do so here in a minute, that's not Isaiah 40. In fact, that's Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Mark brings together three different passages of the Old Testament. He brings together Malachi 3.1. He brings together Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And finally, he brings together Exodus. Exodus twenty three twenty. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Exodus and Isaiah, we'll see this in a minute, carry themes of wilderness and exodus from a land. And we'll touch on that here in a minute. Mark's desire here for the readers that will be reading in that time, not for us today, but the historical context, would have been wanting them to understand that the true Messiah has come. Because all that you know of what to look for has been accomplished, that being John the Baptist. It's a little bit about the messenger. What about the medium? In 1964, a book was published entitled Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man. It was written by Marshall McLuhan. Mr. McLuhan coined the well-known phrase, the medium is the message, meaning that the mouthpiece or the medium that is used to convey a message is as important and oftentimes even more important than the message itself. In 1877, Philip Brooks gave some lectures on preaching at Yale, and this is what he says, Truth through personality is our description of real preaching. The truth must come through the person, not merely over his lips. It must come through his character, his affections, his whole intellectual and moral being. It must come genuinely through him. Or you could paraphrase Mr. McLuhan's phrase in this way, the character of a man speaks louder than the words of a man. Notice John's character, or his medium. He was a humble man. In the face of of great popularity, he was a very humble man. If you turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 30, you'll see that he knew well his job description. John chapter 3, 29 through 30. Listen to how he refers to himself. John referring to himself. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom 
who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He knew himself to be the best man, as it were. He wasn't the bridegroom. This wasn't his day. He wasn't to stand up and give long speeches and draw attention to himself. His job was to simply prepare the way for the bridegroom. And he knew that well. And he continued to do that, as we'll look once we get further into Mark, in the way he handled his life. He continually pointed back to Christ. Continually pointed back to the bridegroom. He was resolute. He was single-minded. And there's obviously much application for us here today. Why was he resolute? Why was he single-minded? Why was he humble? Why did he know his job and do it well? And simply because he was convinced. He was convinced in his faith that what his life was about was meant to show and to proclaim something other than himself because who he was proclaiming means everything. It wasn't, I'm worth something a little bit. He was so convinced that who he was proclaiming, Christ the Messiah, was worth it all, that he was willing to be humble. He was willing to be resolute. He was willing to be single-minded. May the Lord raise up for us more John the Baptists of that type of character. What's his message? What was his message? Go back over with me, if you're still in John, to Mark 1. You see in verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The message of repentance was nothing new in the, Jew- in the Jewish tradition. John was simply a one in a long line of prophets. And all of the prophets had this central message all throughout Scripture of repent. But in response to John's message of repent, John called for something quite unexpected, quite novel, and that was be baptized in the Jordan River. In fact, what he called for was so strange that he becomes known as John the Baptist or John the baptizer. We must note this morning that John's baptism is different than our baptism. John's baptism was a preparation for the messianic baptism to come. He says this, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Notice his humility there. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Christian baptism today is an outward sign of what has already taken place inside someone's heart. John's baptism was a foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit to come. Our baptism is a sign that we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. That new life in Christ has taken place because of Christ's shed blood and free gift of eternal life. When that work takes place by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you will, a person is physically baptized in water to show the world and specifically the church that they have trusted in Christ alone and are submitted to God's will and way in their life. True salvation is evidenced by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. True salvation is evidenced by the Holy Spirit within you. 
One commenter points this out. John's baptism was one of repentance. In this regard, it was not identical to Christ, to Christian baptism or baptism into Christ, Romans 6.3, which includes, and this is our baptism, a demonstration of repentance and cleansing, but also a recognition that they are now identified with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism does nothing in the tense of cleansing us but it's a physical sign of that cleansing by Christ and now identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Notice his message. His message was that of repent. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Not being saved or forgiven because of baptism, but baptism being a sign of that repentance. Let's go over to Luke 3. Luke chapter 3. His message is brought out in greater detail here in Luke 3. Starting in verse 8 and 9. It was not simply a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So repent for the forgiveness of sin. His message was also one of coming judgment. Verses 8 and 9. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Do not begin to trust your lineage. Or do not begin to trust your name recognition. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Look at verse 16 and 17. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with, notice, fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Noting this coming judgment that Christ was bringing as the kingdom of heaven. Certainly there's application for the unbeliever here. And if you do not know Christ, repent and believe is still the only means of entering the kingdom of heaven, out of the kingdom of darkness. And it's still the only means of returning to Christ is repent and believe upon him alone for your sin, for the salvation of your sin. But to also understand that there is a day coming and that day is drawing near and we do not know when that day may be when that judgment will be upon all that do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. All those who have not been saved, who have put their trust alone in Jesus Christ. And yet the message is still for us as well, as believers. It is still to repent and believe. Why? Why as believers are we still called to repent and believe? Is it out of fear of coming judgment? No, it's not. We know that. Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why are we called to repent and believe? Well, go in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And let's look at the broader context around Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. In Mark 1, we only have Isaiah 43. But look at the context around Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. The reason why, as believers, we are still called, even today, to repent and believe. 
not for salvation alone, but as a continuing act of our salvation. Notice the context. Comfort. Underline that word if you make notes in your Bible. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's a blessing, not a curse. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. Or we could say, Christ has come and is bringing about again a land, spiritually noted here, that is like the Garden of Eden. He is restoring a perfect order in the kingdom of heaven that is to come. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So for the believer this morning, to not repent is sin. To not repent of our sin and find our comfort from that sin in Christ alone And his work for us is idolatry because we're trying to find comfort for our sin outside of Christ. And I think the question has to be asked, do we really grasp the comfort that God alone can supply? God alone supplies comfort from our affliction. He alone comforts us in our affliction. He alone provides the comfort needed when we are weighed down by our sin. God alone provides the comfort of mind and heart when we confess our sin. So do we really understand the comfort that comes from having a clear conscience of confessed sin? Do we really understand the comfort that comes in a relationship that has been made by right by seeking or granting forgiveness from sin? When reading our Bibles... I think it's helpful for us to look for key words that point to key themes. And if you, if you look here in Isaiah 40, verse 3, you see this word wilderness. Now go back to your passage there in Mark, and we'll see that a few more times. And I just want to make a, a bit of a note there as it relates to this topic of this message of repentance. John is in the wilderness, and he comes out Notice Christ, after his interaction with John, which we'll look at next week, goes into the wilderness. Why? Why is there this, this, uh, this theme of wilderness? Well, I mentioned earlier that verses 2 and 3 of Mark 1 have a conglomeration of three verses, three passages in the Old Testament. One is in Exodus, one is in Malachi, and one is Isaiah 40, verse 3. There's this theme here of pointing backward to the Old Testament. Mark is pointing us back to the Old Testament and saying, note this wilderness experience. And specifically, the book of Exodus and the book of Isaiah, notice the exodus from something to the wilderness. John's coming from the wilderness, but he starts there. Christ starts there in the wilderness. He begins his his ministry in the wilderness. This theme of wilderness has something, I think, that is important as it pertains to repentance. 
when, as a sign of their complete allegiance to God, the people were called out of the comforts of Egypt into the wilderness. John the Baptist here, and in a few weeks Christ, begin their ministry in the wilderness, calling the people once again to a complete allegiance to God, marked by repentance, and then symbolically, they tuck the gospel back into Egypt, as it were. Do you see this? They're in Egypt, they're in the comforts of, shall we say, sin? And what do they do? They remove themselves into the wilderness as a sign that they are going to be a devoted people, a covenant people with God. That they're leaving this behind and they're going to trust wholly and solely upon God as their God and not the bounty of Egypt. And what what does John do? He stands in the wilderness and proclaims. And what do people do? They symbolically go out to him. And we don't have time this morning, but you should note in your personal study that the fact that they're baptized in the Jordan River. They're going back out as a symbolism of we are now going to leave all of this behind and we see him again as our God. And we will, in that going out, show that as a sign of our repentance. The wilderness was physically a desert, but the spiritual implications were one of great comfort, rest, and single-minded focus and dependence on God. Physically, it was a barren wasteland. But when God is your God and you're in right relationship with him through repentance, there's all the comforts that is needed, is what they're simply seeking to say. Certainly, the application for us today is is that much more strong. We're called to be in the world, but not yet of the, but not of the world. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. And yet our light is not our own. It's not to be set under a bushel. It's to be placed for all to see. In a spiritual sense, repentance is an exodus. It's an exodus from sin. As the people exited Egypt, signifying their going out from among them, as God's people in covenant relationship with him, we are called, as John was calling, to an exodus from our sin. To go back to the wilderness, in a sense, spiritually. To that comfort, which is what it's symbolizing. The, the comfort that we find in Isaiah. The comfort that we find from the forgiveness of our sins. As Christians, we're not under the judgment, under the wrath of God any longer. And yet, to not find comfort for forgiveness of our sins in God is idolatry. It must be that we continue to go back to God. Where we find that comfort, that rest, that dependence on God. So for us as Christians this morning, the message is really threefold. And I just give them to you here, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will minister to your heart the one that best applies to you. Simply, the, mes- the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. And we are to respond accordingly, to repent, to believe. And if you're an unbeliever, to repent and believe and be baptized. Not John's baptism, obviously. Second message for us this morning is that the Messiah is here. He is here in the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you as a believer here this morning. And to you to respond accordingly. And that response is not only repent and believe, but it's rejoice. 
It's rejoice in the comfort that is found in Christ alone. It's to rejoice in the, found, in the fact that the God of all comforts is your God and he will comfort you in your repentance. And then the third is simply that the Messiah will come again and to prepare accordingly. To repent, to rejoice, and to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance as we see in the book of Luke. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that our comfort is found in you and in you alone. In Christ alone is the remission that we desperately need for the forgiveness of our, for, the, for our sin. We find in Christ alone the forgiveness of our sin. Oh, Father, stamp that upon our hearts that the Messiah has come, is here, and is coming again, and he is our Messiah. Father, forgive us if we are not seeking our comfort from the burden of sin in you. May we seek it in you and in you alone. And may we be faithful, Father, as John was, so convinced, so overwhelmed by the Messiah that he was called to proclaim that his life was undeterred in many ways from all that we're so easily deterred by. May, Father, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Christ the Son of God, according to this word, be so overwhelming to us, Father, that our lives would be one marked by a single-minded devotion to Christ, marked by repentance, marked by finding alone our comfort in you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.